I've been reading through the book of Exodus recently, just in my time in God's Word. Those of you who have grown up in the church remember the book of Exodus. You know the events and the stories of that book well, particularly those opening chapters, the enslavement of God's people, the story of Moses and how he came on the scene and all the drama of him coming to lead God's people. Of course, the ten plagues, followed by the triumphant departure of God's people from slavery. Such a great story and such a great picture, such a great pointer for us. You see, that story came to mind vividly for me this week as I was studying this passage. And, and, and one verse in particular that I had recently read, Exodus 12, 35 and 36, says the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. Remember this as they're headed out of town? And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Don't you love that? God didn't just rescue his people. He didn't just remove them from a bad situation, but in his extravagant grace, he restores to them what is rightfully theirs. As we come to this passage this morning in Mark chapter 3, we are reminded, I think, that Jesus is leading an exodus of his own. Jesus has come to plunder. And of course, we could make this point in numerous other places in the New Testament, and it is made in numerous other places in the New Testament. Jesus is the new and the better everything. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Adam. He is the new Israel. He is the better David. He is the once and for all high priest. He is the new temple. But it seems to me that at least in part, Mark is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is leading a new exodus. And I want to show it to you. And I want you to get excited about it. And so I want to meditate on two realities that, that, that we're going to center our thoughts on this morning. Two things for us to meditate on. And the first one is this. Jesus has come to seize his spoils. Jesus has come to seize his spoils. You see, all these events that are happening, Jesus is teaching, he is healing, he is gaining in popularity, but under the surface of all these events that Jesus is doing as he begins his ministry, there's something else going on. There's a deeper spiritual reality that is in play. Boy, do we need, do I need to be reminded of what's really going on, of the deeper spiritual reality. Simply put, Jesus is here to plunder the strong man's house. 
He is here to put Satan and his minions in their place and to claim what is rightfully his. There's a war being waged, and everyone in this passage that we just read understands that, and they get that fact. And that's one of the things I want us to see is that Jesus' mere presence and that the kingdom that he is announcing as he proclaims and as he preaches, that this is a supernatural intrusion. It's a supernatural confrontation. The stronger one has arrived, and he's tying up the strong man in order that he might plunder his house. And it makes me think of that wonderful scene in The Return of the King. As Aragorn, the rightful king, stands outside of the black gates, and the orcs are all before him, standing as the gates have been opened and they have come out. And he looks up in the eye of Sauron, says his name because he recognizes who he is. And he says, Aragorn. And what does Aragorn do? He raises his sword and he cries, for Frodo. And he runs right at the orcs. And everyone runs. And the gates of hell will not prevail. What a beautiful Scene. You see, here in this passage, the unclean spirits, the eye of Sauron, so, so to speak, they see it. They see this spiritual intrusion and this spiritual confrontation that's happening. Jesus walks into a room. He comes into a town. He, they see him and they fall to the ground and they shriek, you are the son of God. They're not worshiping. They're simply acknowledging. They're simply beholding who he is. They can't do anything else. Jesus wants nothing to do with their acknowledgement. In fact, he shuts them up once again, as we've already seen in in this book. His timing is his timing. But they recognize that Jesus has come to plunder. The disciples know it as well. They they've seen him do it. They've seen him confront the evil firsthand, and they're about to be empowered to do the same kind of work in his name, and we'll get to them in just a moment. But let's skip the account of the disciples and go to the scribes. You see, the scribes recognize it too. The scribes recognize this spiritual, supernatural intrusion, yet in the hardness of their hearts, they're blinded concerning the origin of, of Jesus' power, and instead they ascribe Jesus' power to Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul literally means master of the house, but when the scribes are saying that, they are basically saying that Jesus is satanic. And in doing this, they commit an offense that Jesus says here himself is an eternal sin. Now, let me just go on a little bit of a, a tangent here for a second. People worry about this. The unpardonable sin it has become known as. Before I went to seminary, I was a high school teacher in a small Christian school in Augusta, Georgia. And I would have kids come to me, kids who had done foolish, stupid things. 
One kid in particular who had messed with a lot of occultic activities. He had dabbled in very serious stuff and he was concerned that he was guilty, that he was beyond rescue. And I assured him of this. If you're concerned that you may have committed the unpardonable sin, then you haven't. Then you haven't. You see, what Jesus is talking about here is hardened, fixed, determined rebellion against him. This is the sin, as one author wrote, this is the sin where you find yourself beyond pardon. But you know what? You don't care. You don't care. Your hearts are so hard. The scribes' hearts were so hard that they didn't care. And they ascribed Jesus' power to evil. And so don't be worried about the unpardonable sin. Jesus says it's not a, it's not a civil war we have going on here, guys. This is not a civil war. That makes no sense. This is the beginning of a takeover. This is the beginning of the seizing of the spoils. And you may be asking, well, what, what are the spoils of war? What, Jesus has come to seize his spoils. What are the spoils of war? Well, I think we get a, a picture and then the reality for sure. First of all, let's begin with these healings. As we've spoken about before, Jesus didn't come to be a healer. He didn't come to heal. But the healings that Jesus are, is accomplishing, they are telling us something. They are evidence, yes, of his compassion, but they are a pointer. They are a shadow of what is to come, the restoration of all things. Deeper healing Full and complete healing is coming. I want you to imagine this region for just a moment. This region during Jesus' time, just from a physical standpoint. I mean, people have heard about Jesus. They have heard what he has done. They have seen evidence of the fact, and they're coming from everywhere, Mark says. Galilee to the north, Tyre and Sidon to the northwest, Edomia to the south, beyond the Jordan to the east. From every direction, people are coming. And through Jesus, slowly in this region, disease is being eradicated. It's amazing. And it won't be complete. And it will slowly return. But just to be there, to be present, to be present and to see disease beginning to be flushed out. Wow. Restoration of all things is coming. The spoils of war is complete healing. If we were to just take one disease in our world, let's take cancer cells. Can you imagine, and I hope we live to see this day, when we find a cure, something that kills cancer cells, and slowly cancer just becomes eradicated on this planet. No wonder Jesus is being mobbed. Any childhood 
I, I know my childhood. Any childhood storybooks with, with Jesus seated on a grassy hill with like bunnies jumping around in the, in the grassy buffer that he has between him and the, the sparse uh, children that are gathered there. Any scene like that is, is gone, right? This is a mob scene. This is like what you see on TV. Crushing crowds and Jesus is so concerned about this, he's got his own little escape pod, escape pod in the form of a boat to get away if he needs to get away. But who is coming to see him? These are not disciples, at least not all of them. These are fans. These are bandwagon fans, but Jesus didn't come for bandwagon fans. And yeah, he could heal everyone in that region and he could eradicate every disease as it's being flushed out, but he didn't come to do that. That's not the main spoil of war. The main spoil of war is us, is you. Is me, is, is the people here. The mission is about forgiveness of sins. It's about being set free from the slavery to sin. It's about transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Paul gives this great picture to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 2, where he says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And what, what picture Paul is putting in the mind of the Corinthian church and, and us is a Roman general returning from his conquest. And he's coming into the city and he, the victory has been won. The victory is secure. And we are behind. Joyfully captured by his grace. And part of the parade, part of the proceedings. See, Jesus has come to seize his spoils. It's a spiritual confrontation and involves the restoring of the brokenness of our world. Yes, the healings are just a picture, but ultimately it re involves restoring you and restoring me and reclaiming all who are his. That's the first thing I want us to see this morning and meditate on. And get excited about. And the second is this. And it's related. Because he's reclaiming you. And he's reclaiming you for something. He's reclaiming you for his bride. He's reclaiming you as the church. And so the second thing I want you to see from this passage in Mark is this. The church is at the center of the conquest. The church is at the center of the conquest. Next week we're going to talk a little bit more about our life as the church and about what that means. But here in this passage, Mark lays for us the foundation of the New Testament church and reminds us that Jesus came to build his church. 
Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20. Familiar passage, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so Mark's account here of the calling of the twelve, the calling of this unique but rather ordinary group of men is a reminder that he came to build his church and he doesn't need superstars. He doesn't need numbers, but he wants humility. He wants faith. I want you to focus on three things about these men, three things that I think are representative of us all and therefore applicable to us all. And the first one is this. Notice that in this passage, we're kind of in the center of the passage we just read, verses 13 through 19. Notice that the disciples are made. They're created. I was talking to someone about this the other day. I I can't believe that I'm old enough to be thinking about colleges with one of my children, but indeed, that time has come. And so our eldest has begun to look at schools and colleges, and it's a process that I know that many of you have gone through. And as I was thinking about this passage and about this point of the disciples being made, I I was thinking about if a representative from the University of Washington just showed up at my door and told my daughter that she was a husky, just declared it. That's who you are. You are a husky. We'd say, no, 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 this is is our choice. Like we, we shop around, we figure out where the best fit is. No, no, you are a husky. In this passage, this is exactly what Jesus does. And this is what only Jesus can do. He takes these 12 up to a mountain and whenever God's people go up on a mountain. Something significant is going to happen. And who does he take? He takes those whom he desired. Those whom he desired. Little tinge, a little hint of God's electing choice. But more than that, What was behind it? Not randomness, but desire, love. He wanted them. He wants you. You are his treasured spoil. And the response that they had to Jesus saying, come with me, is they came. Another little hint of God's irresistible grace. You see, they He desired them, he called them, they came, and he named them. He named them collectively the twelve, or apostles, and he named them even individually. For here we see that Peter, or excuse me, that Simon becomes the rock, that James and John become the sons of thunder. We'll talk more about them later in Mark and about why they're that name. 
See, Jesus makes these disciples. He declares who they are. And they come. And he gives them a new name. There's lots of little tangents and rabbit holes that we could go down here just in, in this simple fact. But if you are his spoil of war, which you are, he desires you and he has a new name for you. Revelation 2.17, to the one who conquers, a new name will be given, known only by the one who gives it. You see, Jesus knows you. He chose you. And he loves you. You have been made in him. Secondly, these disciples were not only made, but they were ordinary. They were ordinary. NFL, uh, excuse me, NBA playoffs are on these days, and we like basketball at the Hitchcock House, so we're watching a little bit of basketball. And one of the prominent figures in the playoffs this year is Steph Curry. And Steph Curry is very popular these days. And one of the reasons why Steph Curry is so popular is because in some sense, as much as an NBA player can be, Steph Curry is an ordinary guy. You see, he's not this athletic freak like LeBron James. He's not seven foot, one inch tall like Shaquille O'Neal. No, he's my height. And what makes him great at the game is something that we all can do if we practice enough. He dribbles and he shoots the ball incredibly well. You see, we love the ordinary. Think about these 12 that Jesus has made and created and called and named. None of them are extraordinary. None of them are from the Jewish established religion. They're not from the circles of power and influence in the south around Jerusalem. They're from the north. They're nobodies. They're broken. They're messy. They're not particularly gifted at the task that they're about to be given to do. And we know that they're not going to be perfect. We know the end of the story. And that's exactly the kind of people that Jesus loves to use. Right? God shows the weak and the foolish things of the world. I know this encourages me. Jesus is making and using ordinary disciples to be the church. To be at the center of this conquest of the king. But what is a disciple's role? And that's the last thing that I want us to look at here in the choosing of the twelve. What is a disciple's role? Mark will take us here many times in the weeks to come, but let's first begin with this. We may be disciples, but we are not apostles. We are not the twelve. These men are a unique group of men in a unique place in redemptive history. Some of these men were used by the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures None of them, history tells us, died normal, natural deaths, deaths, but they all were killed on account of their faith, on account of their discipleship. You see, they are the foundation that we are now building upon. So we are not them, but we are disciples. 
And their call, our call, is similar to their call. I don't remember exactly where I read this, but one commentator divided what Jesus calls these men to, and by extension us, is relational, verbal, and behavioral. And I kind of like that division. The first thing we are called to be as disciples has to do with our relationship, right? Jesus called them that they might be with him. The first thing we're called to do as disciples, as followers of Jesus, it's not a task. It's a relationship. It's to be with him. To watch him. To listen to him. To learn from him. To learn of him. To enjoy him. See, discipleship is first a relationship. It's a who before it is a what. He called them to simply be with him. And of course, Jesus will later say, I am the vine and you are the branches apart from me. You can do nothing. So the first application for us, being the church at the center of this conquest, is just to be with Jesus. To know him. To listen to him. But then what does he say next to his disciples? That he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Not all of us in this room are called to be preachers. We shouldn't go out from this place searching for demons to cast out. But you are called to proclaim him. To live in light of his coming, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 3, to be living letters to who he is and to what he's about. And yes, you can, in the authority of the name of Jesus, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Knowing that as a child of the king, you are safe. Brothers and sisters, your growth in grace and holiness, your intentionality in in this regard with, with your children, with your families, your relational connections that build the church, that make disciples within as you nurture and disciple one another and without, it's all part of the conquest of the king. With the church as the centerpiece, of the establishment of his kingdom. Do you see it? Jesus is storming the gates and he's calling us to follow. May he give us the grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Father, and we thank you for this picture of our Lord Jesus that we're given. The son of man coming to earth as a supernatural spiritual conquest with his bride, his called out ones at the very center. 
Oh, Holy Spirit, take this word, take the beauty of this truth, of who we are, as those made, as those called, as those commissioned, as those cherished and loved. And do your work in us as we go tomorrow to Boeing and to Microsoft and to our homes and to whatever other offices. Father, that we might be living letters for the King. Oh, Father, this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.